Good afternoon and thank you once again for joining me. Julian Campbell here and we've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program we're going to chat with Christina Sikiotis from the Hunter TAFE about that minute on innovation. We're also talking with Tony Vidray from AV Chartered Accountants about the importance of record keeping. Right now we're going to have a chat with Sonia Anderson from Anderson Law and Mediation Services. Good afternoon, Sonia. Good afternoon, Julian. And thank you once again for joining us. Uh, thank you. So we're going to uh, going to set the scene again with mediation. Over the past months, we have been talking about mediation and various applications of the mediation pro- process. Can we just have a, a little bit of a reminder of some of the things we talked about? Oh, some of the things that we've talked about um, in family mediation, uh, both respect to property and financial matters, and with respect to differences regarding where the children should live and what is in the best interests of the children of separated couples. And we've discussed mediation in the workplace, dealing with issues such as discrimination um, in its many and different forms and harassment. And um, we've touched on workplace bullying. And we've also discussed schoolyard bullying and mediation processes to enable people with their families to formulate estate plans that will stick after they die. And we've talked about mediation as it relates to business in terms of disputes between partners and directors and the like. So so is there a common thread between all these discussions? Well, I guess the main common thread is that, um, at the risk of stating the obvious, um, all of these situations, of course, involve people, Mm. human beings, and perhaps more significantly relationships between human beings. And I guess as a corollary to that, I think that the common thread is that the kinds of people who choose mediation as a way to resolve any conflict, um, such people, I think, are making a conscious decision to be responsible for their own outcomes rather than leaving the outcomes to be determined by some third party, such as a tribunal member, a court, a judge or an arbitrator or even a senior human resources officer. Mm. So, so what is it about relationships? Well, I guess everything in our world is about relationships, really, isn't it, Julian? Um, mm. This program is about the relationship between the law, the business, and, and, our, and our listeners. Our everyday life experiences are about our relationships with those people with whom we communicate, from our spouses and children to our teachers and friends, our workmates and business associates to shopkeepers and salespeople, um, right down to our relationships with other road users. So where does the uh, the law fit in with relationships? Well, what the law is really trying to do is regulate certain of our relationships so as to enforce a certain standard of fair play upon us and in some cases to level the playing field. Are we over-regulated? I think that um, probably the fact that we now have whole industries devoted to compliance is some indication about the level of regulation that exists within our community. Why, why do you think that's the case? Why are we over-regulated? Some people would say that it's because we're now living in a mature society. Um, I guess the legal system is having a hard time keeping up with the many different relationships we now have, especially when you consider that we're now capable of forming relationships with literally millions of people via the internet. So what's the answer? Well, I think there's no um, real one answer, um, no quick solution, of course, but um, um, I think what the Australian legal system is coming up with is more of a reliance on processes like mediation. 
We're now seeing the legal system calling for some people to take personal responsibility for their relationships by enforcing and making mediation compulsory in many different jurisdictions. From your experience, do you think mediation is a viable solution? Yes and no. Uh, Some processes which have been called mediation are really more informal ways for a third party to direct people towards a solution that fits uh, into their agenda. Uh, So I guess some of those processes should more appropriately be called arbitrations or conciliations. Mm. Whereas over the past few months, what you and I have been discussing and talking about is facilitative mediation where the independent third party remains completely neutral and actually doesn't direct or provide any opinions. However, experience tells me that many people struggle to make their own decisions about their own relationships and also struggle to see another person's perspective. And I think this is where the education system um, could provide more assistance than it currently does. So what are you saying here? Well, our education system teaches us a lot about different subjects, but there seems to be very little education for teaching us anything about who we are as human beings and how we actually relate with each other. There's so much knowledge around this these days in terms of neuro, neurology and the like, and I'm constantly frustrated that we don't seem to be passing that kind of knowledge on to our children. So what do you really mean by that knowledge there? What do you mean? Well, I mean, knowledge about how our brains work mm. and, um, um, and knowledge about our feelings, why we have them and how we can be personally responsible for them. We're, we're taught how to meet our personal physical needs, but seldom are we taught how to meet our own emotional needs. And I think, I think in our society we're often taught um, that to even show that we have emotional needs is a sign of weakness. Yeah, I think the other missing element in our education system is in any training on how to relax. It sounds simple, but many of us um, don't really consider that relaxation is really essential to our everyday well-being. So relaxation is a, is a glass of Chardonnay and sitting down and watching the telly? Uh, that's not really what I had in mind. Um, what I really mean is just by having some quiet personal time, like taking a bath or meditating or taking out some some time for quiet reflection, actually not having any of that white noise on. Some religious traditions advocate some silent time for prayer, that kind of thing. Although having a Chardonnay in front of the TV might also form part of your day's fun, it's not actually relaxing our minds. Um, and our minds need relaxing apart from when we're sleeping. And um, I think true relaxation is actually really an art form in itself. And um, unfortunately, I think it's an art that is dying within our community. So has relaxation got a a place in mediation? Well, I think it really does because, um, although it might sound like we've gone off topic a little bit, um, really our overall well-being affects our ability towards contributing towards creating relationships that flourish um, as opposed to contributing and feeding into the negative aspects of a relationship. Now, generally speaking, um, people who are well-balanced and know how to relax effectively will be able to achieve much more through a facilitative mediation than people who are burnt out and exhausted and basically want to go straight to fixing the problem, which usually means punishing the other mm. instead of being prepared to 
actually listen to the other's perspective with an open heart and an open mind. Yeah, and a clear mind, yes. And certainly uh, uh, the importance of relaxation does come come out from there. Well, thanks mm. very much for your time again, and we'll have a chat with you another time. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. And that was Sonia Anderson from Anderson Law and Mediation Services. Well, now it's time to have a chat with Tony Vidray over at AV Chartered Accountants. Good afternoon, Tony. Hi, Gillian. How are you? I'm very well. Once once again, we're looking at a very important subject, although one that obviously a lot of businesses don't like, and that is the record-keeping. Yes, record-keeping. It's a question we get asked all the time, uh, whether by phone call or email, how long do I have to keep records for? So you can see the machinations are in place. People have gone to their archive rooms. They've found boxes and boxes of uh, paper and invoices, and they want to know how far back um, we can throw them out or how far we can we can actually keep them. And, and there's some... There's some, it's pretty consistent, but there are some quirky um, things around record keeping. Generally, businesses need to keep records for five years, but it's five years from the date the transaction is completed. Now, I don't know too many people actually do that. Most people tend to file their stuff in, you know, month order or even yeah. in, in financial year order. But yeah. yeah, once so here we are now in 2012. So technically, about October of 2007 and before. Um, can go, but th- there's an interesting exception to that, and that's to do with if a business has carry forward losses, or if it has a what they call a CGT, a capital gains tax yeah. asset. They've actually got to keep those records for five years after the carry forward losses have been recouped, mm. and in the case of CGT assets, five years after you've actually sold the asset. So you might have, you may have purchased a a rental property, say, 20 years ago, and let's say you sell it now, you've actually got to hang on to all of those records until 2017. Like, you can't get rid of it and say, oh, oh I, I got rid of it because it was the records are more than five years old. And that's, this is where we have a lot of trouble, where people, particularly with shares, mm. they acquire shares or <clears throat> clients acquire shares or even they inherit some shares, and there's, you know, there's very little records. Now, luckily, with a lot of the, the online commerce that we do, we can actually get onto some of these companies like Computer Share and actually download that, that information. But the onus is very clearly on the, on the taxpayer to, uh, to keep the records. Mm. One of the quirky little things for individuals is that there, there's actually two types of um, individual tax returns that go in. There's, there's a, um, simplified returns, which pretty much, if you can just imagine, is just a, a payment summary, a group certificate, and a little bit of interest. Um, the tax office have only got two years to amend those type of returns, but they've got four years to amend returns that are a little bit more complicated if there's, say, a rental property in place. So even though you may be a simple um, taxpayer with just a payment summary and, and a bit of interest, you still have to keep your records for five, five years. years. Yeah. yeah, which is mm. quite um, quite bizarre. Mm. Payroll records are um, important as well. They need to be kept for, uh, for five years as well for payroll tax and, and PAYG. Superannuation records, same thing, five years. Uh, fringe benefits um, tax um, records also have to keep the records for five years. So generally, um, keep things for, for five years. But if you are buying assets or you've got those carry-forward losses, you, you probably need to set up a separate little file for those and, and don't get rid of them until well after the uh, the losses are recouped or the assets sold. And a question that often comes up with uh, people I talk with is, can we uh, electronically uh, file these now? Do we have to keep paper files? You, you can keep them electronically, yeah. In the, in the world of, um, well, 
I, I, I don't subscribe to the view of a, of a paperless office. Mm. I, I read a wonderful article one day to say that we've got as much, um, much chance of getting a paperless office as we have a paperless toilet. Uh, so <laughs> that's just never, ever going to happen. But I think the mantra is to, to move towards less paper and, yeah. uh, and scanning um, documents in. Um, certainly scanners have become a lot cheaper and a lot faster and a lot more powerful. Um, but there's a very big proviso with that. You, you still have to be able to retrieve it, and you have to be able to retrieve it in a format that is legible. Okay. And um, and some people, yeah, we have scanning procedures in place here where yes. where we do go back and check that the document has actually been scanned properly. The last thing you want to do is uh, go and shred a 150-page a uh, uh, file only, only to discover that you can't read the electronic version that's on the, on the system. Yeah, but you definitely yes. can scan and get rid of, and I, I think that's best practice. And, of course, a lot of uh, tax invoices these days you receive in the mail or email attached to an email anyway. That's it, yeah, yeah. that's it, which causes its own, its own grief because, uh, you know, someone's got to um, act on that, right-click on it, and, and invariably, and what happens, Julian, you know, you receive it via email, what's the first thing that people do? You print it. Exactly, <laughs> so it's exactly. Sort of counter, it's a bit counterproductive. And then file it and there's throw it away. Quirky, <laughs> there's a few quirky rules with super funds, just to finish off on those. They're, they're a little bit different. If you have a, a, a self-managed super fund that we talk about every now and again, you've got to keep records for 10 years mm. for those, not five. So. Okay. You've got to hang on to records for 10 years. And again, the same rules apply, that it's 10 years after you actually sell an asset. And the super fund is going to be one of those circumstances where you sell, you know, buy shares, hang on to them for um, you know, a period of time. Then you sell them. Well, it's 10 years from the date that you, uh, that you sell it. So mm. a lot of records being kept for super funds. Great. Well, thanks for your time, and we'll have a chat again next week. Don't worry. See you next week. Thank you. That was Tony Vitre there from AV Chartered Accountants helping us to look at how long do we keep our records? Well, now it's time for our Minute on Innovation with Christina Sikiotis, the Project Manager of Create and Innovate at Hunter TAFE. Good afternoon, Christina. Hi, Julian. And we're talking about my favourite subject this afternoon, penguins. We are, Julian. We're actually going to refer to our Iceberg is Melting by John Cotter, which is a great fable about penguins. Um, and I thought it, I thought it was a really good time to talk about successful change. Uh, this book is about handling change well and the prosperity that can lead to that as opposed to the risk you could be exposed to if you resist change or if you do it wholeheartedly. So the book is a fable because often it's easier to slip into a non-reality and let the reality dawn on you at your own acceptable pace. So to be brief, Julian, in the, what the book does is it takes you through the eight steps to successful change. So the first step is to create that sense of urgency that things do need to change. And then you pull together the, the right team that's going to guide you through that change. And that, that team might be made up of various people within your organisation. So then what ha- needs to happen is, is the development of the vision and the strategy that, that's going to lead you towards that change and where you actually want to go with that change, Um, why it's going to be prosperous for the company or the organisation to make those changes and how you're actually going to get there. Communicate the understanding. My my favourite words here are buy-in because if you don't get buy-in from all levels within your organisation, whether it be a school, whether it be a business, a small or large business, it doesn't matter. If you don't get the buy-in, the change isn't going to happen. There needs to be a certain empowering of other people within that whole process. You also need to produce short-term wins so that people don't think it is a fable and it's it's a, something that's not going to turn into a reality. So those short-term wins are important and that persistence, that, that persistence and belief in what you're doing that's going to get you across the line. Um, and then hopefully once you've done all of that, you need to make things stick, as they say in the book, and that new culture, hopefully along the way you've created that new culture um, with the buy-in, with empowering people and with having the whole process work through a step-by-step 
strategy. And certainly those steps and processes are so important in making things happen, aren't they? They are very important. And that whole buy-in, I can't stress buy-in enough, Julian. Well, thanks very much for your time. We'll have another chat next week. Okay, we will. And that was Christina Sikiotis from Hunter TAFE helping us to understand those eight steps to making things happen. And, well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. We've looked at mediation with Sonia Anderson and uh, important record-keeping with Tony Vidray. In a moment, Jane Klein will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we'll enter the world of tax again with Tony Vidray of AV Chartered Accountants. Have another minute on innovation with Christina Sikiotis and maybe some other little tips to motivate you and improve your business. I'd love your company again at the same time for business, the law and you. Until then, have a safe and prosperous week. And as Buddha once said, all that we are is the result of what we have thought.